0: I think I would tell my kids' kids that happiness is really other people and what you can do with them and for them. And so, you know, have enough money to not be stressed, but have, you know, hopefully use your skills and and your abilities to do what you can to have money to help other people.
1: Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part... It's a complicated one. My name is Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F Word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F Word Podcast. I am glad you are joining us this week as we had a fantastic conversation with Dr. Laura Atkin. Who is Laura? Well, she is a psychology professor at Simon Fraser University and the Chair of the Mental Health and Wellbeing Task Force for Lancet's COVID-19 Commission. Laura's research lies in the intersection of social psychology, positive psychology, economics, and judgment and decision-making. I find her work so fascinating as she focuses on questions that include the study of what makes people happy, the emotional consequences of kind or generous behaviors, and the well-being around specific spending choices. We spent a lot of today's episode talking about her research around pro-social spending, which is what are the outcomes to our well-being when we spend money on others, It's super interesting as we really examine people's perceptions of money and happiness and the relationship they have when we spend money on others. We also talk about what is happiness. And we start out talking about this idea of what is happiness because I think it's important that we have this baseline understanding of what is happiness. It's a really vaguely defined term and we have so many different perspectives of what is happiness. So I thought it was important that we start with What her research is showing around what happiness is. Then we dive into her fascinating research on pro-social spending and how spending on others can, and I say can, lead to more happiness in our lives. Laura really goes into how we can use our money to spend on others that make us happier. And there's three common core needs that her research has shown provide us with the best bang for a buck, if you will, on how to spend money on others in order to get these psychological benefits. Laura also talks about the importance of taking our information from evidence-based scientific research as it provides us with a grounds to really look at information that's been researched and proved to work. She talks about the importance of replicating research to make sure that the results that we are relying on are valid And that research changes over time and that we have to keep this open mindset. Then we start to dive into what is enough money? When we're looking at our levels of happiness, is there a certain amount of money? It was really interesting to hear Laura's perspective on when is enough money in terms of our levels of happiness. We talk about so much more. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. Laura Adkin. Laura, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you. I have read many of your papers over the last number of years, and I find them extremely insightful, I guess, for myself, just where I am on my discovery of this relationship between money and happiness. And I appreciate the level of concern your work has on providing us consumers with academic evidence-based data or information that we can use when we're trying to navigate this crazy distinction between money and happiness. So I'm looking forward to diving into this. But before we get into this link, if there is any between money and happiness, I want to start slowly. What is happiness? I mean, we use this word all the time. We want to be happy. We don't feel happy. We say, we say we're feeling happy. Yet it's one of the most vague and hard to define terms. So if someone asked you, what is happiness? How would you respond?
0: Uh, That's a good starting point. I think that's a great question. So happiness is defined in the literature. Uh, Happiness is a term that I think is colloquially used to um, understand what psychologists and other researchers who are studying this concept call subjective well-being. And that's really how people define themselves in terms of these positive and pleasant emotional states and positive evaluations of their life. And so a leading conceptualization of subjective well-being, which many of us colloquially referred to as happiness, concerns kind of three components. One is the presence of positive emotional states. The second is the absence of negative emotional states. And those are kind of like how you're feeling, generally speaking, in the moment or in the short term. And those are nicely contrasted to the third pillar or third component, which is one's cognitive evaluation of your life as a whole. You know, that might be swayed somewhat and to a degree by how you're feeling in the moment, but doesn't fluctuate necessarily from moment to moment or day to day necessarily. It can change over time, but usually someone's life satisfaction, kind of their big holistic evaluation of their life, is relatively stable. And so it's it's the presence um, of positive emotions, the absence of negative, and and these positive evaluations of one's life that comprise subjective well-being. And that's how people evaluate themselves to be that we we often or I often think about is is uh, self-reported happiness.
1: A couple things you said there, relatively stable. As a father of a three and five-year-old, I feel like it's not stable in terms of if I'm feeling, maybe it's not even actually, I was gonna say if I'm feeling happy or not. What's going on there? Is that my feelings or my emotions are feeling in flux or is that my happiness levels?
0: So as a mother of a three and seven-year-old, okay. um, generally life evaluations would be like the more, you know, if you step back and I ask you to take your life as a whole, how would you read it? it might fluctuate a bit in terms of like whether your 3 three-year-olds having a temper tantrum or if you've stubbed your toe, um, but chances are you, you might read yourself on, you know, a very widely used measure like the Cantor ladder on this zero to 10 scale. You're probably pretty, be pretty stable from day to day, but what is likely to bounce around are more, are more likely those positive and negative emotional states. And so, you know, if you're, getting hit in the face with food while your toddler's eating and they're screaming, or, you know, you might not be experiencing the most positive emotion and and higher levels of negative affect. And then later, you know, you're snuggling with one of your kids, it might be much higher positive affect and lower negative. I'm guessing those are the components that are probably informing what might be your your momentary happiness ratings. But the more stable component would be probably by prediction, probably relatively stable from day to day, even moment to moment. It's not that it can change, but it's usually not bouncing around in that kind of time span.
1: Okay. Yeah. Then you're saying if people experience negative emotions, they can still be happy.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yes. You know, if people experience a preponderance, like an abundance of negative emotions, it doesn't necessarily preclude the fact that they can't be experiencing positive emotions too. So one example I give when I teach this Because I think it is a little bit of a mind bend. We often think about positive and negative affect as opposite ends of the same spectrum. But in fact, the data suggests that they're two completely different continuums. And so you can have low levels of both at the same time. You can have high levels of both at the same time. They might often be seen kind of high in one and and low in the other, but they, they can fluctuate independently. And so one of, I think, the most striking moments for me when I remember this, and I often give it as an example when I'm talking about it with people, is one of the first times I dropped my my kids off at daycare and they weren't grabbing onto my leg and it was a relatively easy goodbye. And while I was so proud and also joyful that my child felt independent and confident enough to walk off and go play with someone in the other room, but also, you know, a little heartbroken and sad, <laughs> my child is just like waving over their shoulder and off into another room. And so, you know, moments like that, I think many of us have experiences where we can have these bittersweet emotions and and complex emotional states. And, th- and that might often come, this complexity might come from when we feel both high levels of positive and negative affect and low levels of positive and negative affect concurrently.
1: You actually remind me of this morning. My son's birthday was yesterday. He turned six and he always gives a big hug before out of school care. And then I'm like, Lewis, and he went to go, he didn't give me a hug. He's like, see ya. I was like, whoa, you turned six and now <laughs> this happens? And I was like, come on. And so I appreciate that because I opened up saying I appreciate your your attention to academic and evidence-based research. And I think that's applicable in the happiness world because we see so many self-help books or other maybe author point of view perspectives that I feel at times make Other people feel like if I experience a negative emotion, something's wrong with me, I'm not happy, and it kind of perpetuates this positive toxicity thing. So I really wanted to get the point across that this is evidence-based information that really, really has deep, rigorous research that we can start to rely on when we want to look at our relationship with happiness. So. I want to get into the money side here, but when you, back to the stability thing, can you touch on the research that has talked around our happiness set points? And I know different percentages are thrown around, but maybe not, we don't have to get into exact percentages, but I guess your take on this idea that we have a stable innate given level of happiness, and then the other categories that may influence our overall levels of happiness.
0: Sure. So there is some research suggesting that what influences our happiness levels may be in part biologically predetermined or, or, you know, in our genes. So there's some some classic research on um, monozygotic and dizygotic twins. So those who share all their genetic information and those who are you know, born in the same at the same time, but are effectively as are are as similar as uh, two siblings might be. And long story short, people who share their genetics identically seem to have much more similar happiness levels later in life than dizygotic twins who who are as as similar genetically as, as brother and sister are. And that has led to researchers suggesting that a substantial proportion of what influences our happiness might be genetic. And because we can't really change our genetics right now, we're kind of locked in at this biological set level. Since some of that classic research, which made a huge splash and was really interesting, additional work has come out to show that our genes might have an influence on our happiness, but it's not a perfectly direct route. And there are certainly other things that might matter. So there are other forces that might lead some to stability and happiness and and some important ways in which there's flexibility too. So one another contributing factor in addition to genes that, that leans into the stability side of things is the idea of hedonic adaptation. So Even when our lives might change in some large and pretty consequential ways, like we get married, we move to new places, we have kids, we land our dream job, all of these things seem like they might skyrocket or or tank our happiness. People do react, but a lot of data suggests that we don't react as strongly and extensively or at least for as long as we might think we will. And so that leans into the stability camp. However, more recent research has suggested that just because there are forces for stability doesn't mean that happiness can't change. And contributing pieces that matter for these changes sometimes don't lie where we think they might be. So large circumstantial changes like getting married or having kids or landing our dream job or earning a lot more money, we often think will bring a lot more happiness than it often does. And in fact, the research suggests that it's sometimes that kind of Maybe the most magic, if you will, happens in the small everyday choices we make through um, what some researchers like Sonia Lubomirsky and colleagues have called volitional activities. So these are the kinds of things that we choose to invest our time in. They don't necessarily just happen to us, but they're, you know, like if you choose to go for a run, if you choose to reach out to a friend, you choose to do a kind deed, these types of things, you choose to be grateful. These are small little things that you might think might not change your happiness. But over time, it actually, the evidence suggests that over time and in some accumulative fashion, it can have a a pretty substantial and and possibly long-term impact on happiness. There was a lot there.
1: No, it's so good that I want to get to like some of the stuff that I, I thought I'd be talking about, but you keep making me think of so many aspects, I guess, of the human condition, of this desire to seek more and more, but yet we adapt to so much, but it's those everyday moments. And it was making me think of an article, and I I wasn't prepared to talk about this, but you recorded an article at The Atlantic talking about how, I forget what the title was called, something about how maybe the pandemic didn't, after the pandemic settling, maybe it didn't impact our mental health as much as we originally thought. And your last statement about those momentary things are kind of create more happiness in this pandemic evaluation made me think of myself where you talked about happiness is the valid part of happiness and subjective well-being is evaluating our life. And during the pandemic, our recently is reflecting on, fortunately, we didn't have any health scares in our family. And I started, I guess, evaluating things. And the most enjoyable thing I could think about in the last two years, not the most, but something that was really important to me was I got to walk my kids to school and daycare every day. And it was just those daily little things that compound. And it's like, that's the biggest thing I can remember that has been much different beyond any promotions or increases of those material things that I would suspect. So those things together were just making me think of myself in terms of this. Fortunately, I was healthy throughout the pandemic, but really got me to observe these momentary day to day things that have helped me feel, I guess, more happy in my life. So I don't know if you have any comments in terms of that article of what you guys did find in terms of the mental health that we perceived at the start of the pandemic was really, really, I guess, negative, but maybe not so much?
0: Sure. Yeah. I'm happy to give a quick summary. And if if you want to dive into it more, let me know. But you're referring to the, yeah, the Atlantic piece, which was kind of a, what we hope was an approachable summary of, of this larger review we wrote of the literature trying to understand how mental health had fluctuated over the first year and a bit of, of the COVID-19 pandemic for this mental health task force we were working on through the Lancet. And long story short, me and a bunch of experts in the field of mental health, from psychology to economics to public health and, and whatnot, we, we got together. We started reading the evidence and and tried to collect. There was so much information coming out. We were really trying to get a sense of what was going on. And so collectively, we read hundreds of papers. We nominated what we thought was some of the most rigorous work, whether it be through like large representative samples, whether it be through really tight methodologies, through well-used scales, through pre-registered designs. We pulled together what we thought were the best available papers to try to look at this question from multiple ways. And while we sat down to really kind of synthesize information, we thought it was going to be an avalanche of heart rate. We thought it was just mm-hmm. going to be, it's, you know, depression rates had skyrocketed. Anxiety rates were through the roof. Suicide rates were through the roof, you know, had, had re- risen. With, th- those were our expectations. So the picture is more complex than I'll be able to summarize here. But the general trend was, yes, anxiety and depression did raise significantly so and strikingly so during the first spring in North America during COVID. But by midsummer. These rates of anxiety and depression, what we call kind of broadly psychological distress, had returned or had started to dip and in some places were back to pre-pandemic rates, which was quite surprising to us. Meanwhile, other markers of distress or challenge showed minimal impacts. So, for instance, there was a fantastic paper published in The Lancet by Perkis et al. looking at suicide rates in over 20 countries, and they found no significant change from their predicted patterns in the first year of the pandemic. Now, obviously, suicide is a big and and complex measure. Some people argue it takes time for things to compound and for these rates to change. But, you know, it had been a year in and and there had been no significant increase in, in nearly all of these countries. Meanwhile, the constructs that we might think are most closely aligned to happiness and well-being showed some variability. Positive emotions were down and negative emotions were up but life evaluations were surprisingly stable. In fact, there was nearly no change from pre-pandemic to during the first year of the pandemic. And so some data sets showed no change in loneliness and social connection, and some showed a small change, but not nearly. I think what many of us would have expected in the early days of the pandemic, where there were stay-at-home orders, you know, people were calling for what we thought might be a second pandemic on loneliness, right? And so we were struck by what appeared to be, at least on average, some really surprising levels of stability and resilience in the data. And that's what the Atlantic piece shows. Um, there's also some complexity where we point out that you know beyond these, these average levels, the averages smooth over a lot of really meaningful groups that aren't seen in, mm-hmm. in, in, with clarity. And so there certainly were some groups, especially younger individuals, female individuals, and people with young kids at home, which I imagine you fall into that box based on the age of your kids now, that really reported some of the highest levels of psychological distress during the pandemic. And so it's not that everybody was doing just fine, but I think people were doing perhaps but certainly better than I would have personally predicted. Um, and, and I think that does speak in some ways to the resilience on, on average, but our point was that some people were really struggling and if we know who those people are, we can direct aid there and make some of those really tough choices about who we help and how we intervene and how we manage in this, you know, kind of extraordinary situation.
1: Hmm. Yeah, very interesting. And, And it's interesting that, you know, there's that initial peak downwards, but then a recovery and it almost, it reminds me of this idea that we're talking about adaptation, uh, that we, we get used to things. Yes. And so much of uh, the work around money and happiness is this idea that you we talked a bit earlier, roughly on, is that if you get a pay raise or a big promotion, despite we might think that's going to make us as happy as we dreamed, it, it wears off. So let's, let's start talking about money and happiness. I'm so fascinated by money. It's this thing that we use indirectly and directly every day. But yeah, we don't talk about it. We don't really know much about it. And we try to strive and base our whole lives around it. I know we need it, but we put so much cognitive and physical effort into it. We get stressed by it. We get happy by it or we think we do so many different things. So in a world that seems like we have a limited amount of time, seems like we have a limited amount of money. And I think we feel like there's limited amounts of momentary happiness at times. How can we use money and our spending behaviors to create more happiness in our lives, if possible?
0: That's a great and complex question. I can give <laughs> you a few answers. Yeah. Um, some, some emerging from my work, some emerging from other people's work that I really admire. So, yeah, first, first and foremost, I think it's worth acknowledging this: there's a complex relationship between money and happiness. Generally speaking, if I had to summarize it and distill it to a couple points they're positively correlated, but not nearly as strongly as most people suspect. So yes, certainly within a country, people who have more money tend to report higher levels of happiness than people who have less. But this relationship is not nearly as strong as as people think. So we've read a couple studies looking at people's predictions about the money and happiness relationship. And we find that most people really underestimate the happiness of low-income earners. Low-income earners are less happy than high-income earners, but they're not you know, in the depths of depression and despair every day. They likely have more daily struggles in some domains than other people do, but also perhaps some some overlooked strengths and, and supports that maybe most of us don't recognize. But anyway, the point is, is within a nation, Usually there is a small but positive correlation between money and happiness. This relationship does get stronger when we look across countries, in part because countries with higher levels of GDP per capita or higher earnings can provide better supports to the people, to, to the citizens and the, and the people who live there. So safe drinking water, some kind of infrastructure often comes with less corruption and so on and so forth. But anyway, so there is a positive relationship between money and happiness, but it's it's complex. But generally speaking, people think that, yes, like you said, earning this, you know, this 20, $30,000 raise or whatever it might be, catapulting to this next stage of my career will make me so happy and it's going to make me happy forever. And oftentimes people are sorely disappointed by by what happens there. So money is this resource we can use to perhaps bring about a lot more happiness. But some folks have argued in some very beautiful ways that we're not doing that because we don't know how to spend our money right Mm. So one, I think one of the most well-established findings kind of coming out of this domain is some work by uh, Leif Van Boven and Tom Gilovich showing that spending money on um, experiences leads to greater happiness than buying things. There's been over a decade of research on this question. It's been found in many different samples and in many different ways, using different research paradigms. But broadly speaking, people tend to be happier, for instance, going on a vacation than using the same amount of money to buy a couch or something like that. There are different reasons and we can talk about why that is, but that's kind of one recommendation I think I would I would offer to folks. Another kind of key thing emerging from this or, or responding to that question is is some of my work which suggests that people actually get more happiness spending their disposable income on other people than as than on themselves. I think this can sometimes be a pretty counterintuitive finding because we strive to make this money to buy the things that we need, and I'm not saying anybody should forgo, you know, the things the essentials of their life to to give too much in a way that might cause them and their family strife. But if people have extra disposable income and they're thinking about how to spend it, we could often reap more enjoyment than uh, spending on others than on ourselves. And I'll give one other answer, but we can circle back if there are other things you want to talk mm-hmm. about because it's probably not an exhaustive list is some really cool new research by um, relatively new research by Ashley Willens and colleagues finds that using one's money or disposable income to buy time. And by what I mean by that is to buy things out of the really the stuff we don't like doing, like the tasks, the annoying things. And, for, you know, some people have I think we all have our own idiosyncratic annoyances, but using money to alleviate that time and do stuff with others or just get out of those nasty tasks that we don't like can uh, lead to greater happiness than spending in other ways, primarily like on buying things for ourselves. So yeah, buying experiences, buying things for others, and if you will, buying time.
1: Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. I think we should, I, I would like to go into your research on, on. I think you, you called the pro-social spending. Yeah. Is it 2019 you were quoted in the World Happiness Report?
0: We wrote a chapter for the World Happiness Report. Yeah.
1: Right. And I found found it interesting that it wasn't how to save money, it was how to spend money on yeah. like this. <laughs> and which I think is really interesting because saving money, there's so much narrative around save money, save money and it, I feel like and this is just my personal perspective, it comes from like a a scarcity mindset, like you got to save, save, save. Whereas you're talking about like spending money and especially Mm pro-socially. Why don't you explain what you mean by this pro-social spending and and what benefits does it actually have on us?
0: Yeah, our chapter was primarily focused on how kind or generous acts can promote people's happiness. Pro-social spending is a label that we gave to this kind of This form of generous spending when we first started studying the topic back around 2008. And so really, it's using one's financial resources to help others instead of oneself. And so this can take various forms. And I think there, you know, around the world, there are probably various different manifestations of this. But it's, you know, it can be everything from treating a friend to coffee. It can be buying essentials for someone you care about, someone you don't know, donating money to charity almost any kind of use of one's own personal finances or earning of finances to help other people. That's kind of the broad umbrella we've we've casted it as. A lot of our work focuses on the emotional rewards, particularly the short-term emotional rewards, the rewards that come from doing these kind and generous forms of spending. So in most of our studies, we look at the positive affect component, the, the happiness kind of three-part framework we talked about earlier. And we find that when people are randomly assigned to spend money on others generously as opposed to on themselves, they report higher levels of of happiness immediately afterward or at the end of the day. It's important that we use experiments for this, though, because there's a very strong and far-reaching correlation between these things. And so if we look around the world, happier people are the people who spend more money in generous ways, giving to charity, giving to friends and family, and so on and so forth. And that's really comforting to see. What is the source of this association? We don't know. Is it that doing kind things for others makes people happy? Is it that happier people are doing kind and generous behaviors? Or that some other variables responsible for the relationship, like these people who do kind stuff have more friends and those friendships and positive relationships make people happy. And so that's why we need these experimental designs to really see whether the people we randomly assign to do kind things are those who feel good moments later at the end of the day, et cetera, because they didn't get to choose to do this act. You know, they had a little bit of choice in how to do the kind deed, but we didn't just let happier people choose to do the kind. We randomly assigned some people to do things for themselves, some people to do things for others and then see how they feel afterward.
1: Yeah, I mean, so many different, I guess, complexities there. And when I was reading your research, I I started thinking about, uh, again, you always think about yourself when you're reading this. And I know that I feel in moments of, engaging with others when I'm pro social spending, call it. And from an authentic way, it feels good. And and there are more memories and they're more, I guess, impactful to me. My job is a, a financial planner. I then oft, often seen kind of like a almost dysfunctional version of this, where people will spend money on others because it's something that maybe they're lacking inside of themselves. Have you come across this in your research where people are spending money on others and and i hear this from clients being like well wow, i'm spending this on my kids and they're not appreciating me much so there's like this expectations held to the the gifting or the pro social spending have you come across anything like that? Or would it maybe not even be categorized as pro-social spending if they're doing it from that that lens?
0: So there's a lot of interesting complexities wrapped up in your question. So first and foremost, we've defined pro-social spending as kind of the act, not the motivation behind it. In oh, okay. part, because the motivation to get at, it's difficult to get at the motivation, at least with some clarity. Very few people are willing to admit that I did this kind of thing for personal benefit, <laughs> or at least be very transparent about it. We've seen in some studies that like on instances, people will say, well, there was this one time, but like by and large, when I do these kind, generous acts, it's because I, you know, I believe in what I'm doing. I think this is an important cause. I care about this person, but it's not like I want to look good. So rarely will people be very explicit in their motivations. And so the definition to, to today's working state, at least in, in my collaborators and in my lab, has been very much focused on the act rather than the, the motivation behind it. And what you said about your clients and your personal experiences, I think, is is interesting and complex and aligns with a couple findings we've seen in the literature. One particular study, and so maybe I'll back up and say, I think the emotional rewards of giving are greatest. We found that when they align with kind of three basic needs that have been highlighted in the literature in the past through self determination. So the first is that when people feel a sense of autonomy or volition in how they give, you know, if I force you to go give in a certain way, like, I'm not saying this is always the case by any means, but sometimes when we give to friends and family, there might be very prescribed for how we give. Sometimes you know, buying things for our kids aren't necessarily the most joyful moments because it's just another snack of fruit. You know, it's just another pack of fruit snacks. It doesn't really feel like a gift. It's just like another thing of groceries. We don't always think about it that way. To the extent that I think people feel like they have some autonomy, some freedom, some volition over how they give, usually those emotional rewards are greater. The emotional rewards also tend to be greater when we give in ways that are quite connecting with other people. So a lot of cues for connected giving are giving in a face-to-face fashion. It doesn't need to be, but you know, you can think of ways of giving remotely that can be very connecting, but still oftentimes when people get a chance to spend moments you know, of, of intimacy or friendship or laughing together, those are often signs of the relatedness in giving. And then finally, the third factor is feeling that you've had a positive impact. Most of the time when we give, we feel like we're having a positive impact, but you can, I can certainly think of occasions where I've given a gift that was poorly received or times where I've given a gift and, you know, I feel like I've made a huge impact on someone's life versus a very minimal difference, right? Some charities, your donation can buy a life saving drug and some donations will still be important, but it, it might be of smaller consequence than a life saving drug, I guess. So those three factors can move separately and whatnot, but I think there are ways in which giving not every act of giving is going to hit, check all those boxes. We're not always going to feel euphoric after we give. I, I can see why sometimes it's, it, it doesn't always work out that giving is this outstanding experience. But oftentimes it does check a few of these boxes or in important and meaningful ways. And I think that's why most of the time we feel good when we give. The last thing I just wanted to mention is I think there are instances, although like I said, they're not always explicitly reported where, you know, people do give with some ulterior motives. They might not be the driving force. But with my former student, PhD student, Dylan Leewan, we ran one study where we asked people to reflect on a time in which they did a pro-social act for a very other focused reason, like for the benefit of the recipient and really pure motives versus pro-social spending for what might have been personal benefit, like you wanted to look good in the eyes of your boss, you wanted to get a tax receipt, you wanted to do these other things. And consistent with the with what I imagine most people's intuitions are, is that giving was most rewarding when people engaged in this pro-social act with a very other focus. So when people are doing it with some kind of tinge for self-benefit, it's not as emotionally rewarding. Circling back to your question, I think giving might not always lead to these higher levels of happiness, but oftentimes it does because I think it checks those three boxes of autonomy, relatedness, and, and impact. But when people do it for selfish, more selfish reasons, that also seems to undermine it as well.
1: Yeah, I, I really like that. The relatedness, autonomy, and positive impact. And I think that's something that, that listeners can, can really use as kind of a, an evaluative reason why am I, I spending yeah, it's really, really fascinating. Now, d- does it matter if I get a windfall of money and spend that or if I'm spending somebody else's money? Does that have any impact on the pro-social spending?
0: Another good question. And the short answer is I'm not 100% certain. So uh, I could tell you why. So there is one study where with very small, and minimal design, the researchers either had people earn money or, or receive a windfall that they either spent on themselves or others. And what the researchers found in that particular study was that it didn't really matter the source of the money. As long as you spent on other people, you were happier than if you spent on yourself. That being said, we're talking about relatively small sums of money, like I think what was around $5, if I'm remembering right. But also, it was a relatively small study with not a huge number of people. And so I'm not, I'm not saying that that study is, is, is not leading us in the right direction, but I think it would be nice to replicate with the larger, larger financial earnings, like windfalls or, or earnings but also with a larger study design, which as you might imagine is very expensive. (laughs) Um, And so for both practical reasons like that, because it's expensive to run these large studies, but also it's also unethical for me to tell people how to spend their own money. It's hard to make these kinds of conclusions. What I can say though, is that when we look at how people spend their own money in everyday life, the findings converge very nicely with what happens with the findings we, we observe in experimental studies where we provide windfalls. In both those situations, spending money on others leads to higher levels or is associated with or leads to higher levels of happiness than spending money on oneself. So it seems that regardless of whether it's a windfall or earnings, these emotional rewards pan out but it would be nice to run a large expensive study to be
1: sure. Well, I'll tell you, I'm always constantly trying to figure out my own relationship with money, but when sometimes I have a hard time spending too much of it. Yeah. But when I, when I get money, like a windfall or a given it or a free company uh, expense, and I could take someone out for dinner, nothing feels better. Yeah. <laughs> At least for myself. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, order what you want. Yeah. I found it interesting that, in one of your papers, I saw that perhaps volunteering didn't actually create as much positive effect as spend pro-social spending. Why is that? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'll do my best to answer that. So yeah. We saw that in the World Happiness Report chapter, because what we were trying to do was pull together all the evidence to try to, to evaluate, like, what is the strength of the evidence for the emotional rewards of various forms of generosity, one being spending money on others and another, spending time on others, if you will, which is the volunteering versus charitable giving pro-social spending stuff. And I think, you know, it's interesting when we started doing work on pro-social spending, we drew a lot of information from the volunteering literature because that's what was available and we learned from. And there's a huge, a huge body of work showing that volunteering and happiness are correlated. But as I mentioned before, these correlational findings are hard to interpret because we don't know if volunteering is making people happy, we don't know if happier people are more likely to volunteer, or if there's something else about it, like the relationship benefits or or whatever might come from it. Although for both of these literatures, pro-social spending and volunteering, there's a large amount of correlational evidence for both, the pro-social spending literature has really developed, I think a lot of experiments that have been run where we can now see that giving money or spending money on others leads to higher levels of happiness and i think we can say that you know with quite a bit of confidence that this relationship exists or is is well is supported in the literature meanwhile the volunteering side of things there have not been many experiments looking at whether randomly assigning people to do volunteer work makes them happier and to be honest those that have been conducted with large samples and especially these pre-registered designs which i can talk about later if, if you're interested don't find um, strong evidence for these emotional rewards of volunteering. And it might be for various reasons. There are only, to my knowledge, two or three of these studies that have been like actual experiments with large numbers of people where individuals have been randomly assigned to either volunteer or wait to volunteer. And we haven't seen long-term emotional differences emerge you know, one possibility, which, you know, may or may not be the case. It's a little pessimistic, but it might just be that volunteering doesn't make people happy. My suspicion is that it's not that, is that (laughs) it's complicated, like the pro-social spending Mm. literature we talked about before. I kind of see generous spending and volunteering as, you know, under this bigger umbrella of just kind and generous action. And so my suspicion is that they kind of might operate in, in similar ways where volunteering might be most emotionally rewarding when it's autonomous, when it's done in socially connected ways, and when it has high impact. And not all forms of volunteering offer that, right? Like, in fact, one of these programs, which is one of the few, the handful of studies that actually uses this experimental design, it's looking at kids who are participating in a volunteer program in their high school. To a certain extent, it raises questions. I'm not sure on all the details, but it raises questions about how much volition these kids have, right? Did they get to choose they were helping and how they were helping and how many hours a week they're helping. Or they, were they told, you are doing five hours a week at this care facility, scrubbing these toilets or reading to these folks or bringing food? I, I don't know the details, but I think it raises some interesting questions that I think we need further research to really dive into.
1: Hmm, yeah, I have to volunteer and my son's hockey at a bingo, like running a bingo, and uh, it doesn't really bring me any joy at all. <laughs> but when I do work around financial financial literacy with youth, and I, I really enjoy that, and I think there's a mixture of my own autonomy and even being around other people, building relationships, all makes makes me feel good. So often people talk about this idea of happiness, and you alluded to something that I want to draw on, this happiness might not be for everyone. Like low, lower income households might not be able to get the same levels of happiness. And you made a comment that sometimes we're surprised by their reported levels of happiness. A few months back, I had Dr. Robert Biswa on the podcast, and he talked about his research when he went to Calcutta, and he was surprised by the amount of happiness that individuals in quite severe poverty situations were feeling. So this pro-social spending and related to happiness, what have you found around different varieties of individuals, incomes, and so forth?
0: Yeah, well, so first and foremost, I should say, some of the work that we've done looking at the emotional consequences of pro-social spending in rich and poor countries, Robert Bispo Dieter is on that paper. I'm aware of those findings. And I think that's important because you're right. I, I, to clarify, I, I don't want to say that happiness is unachievable to individuals of lower uh, income by no means. I, the finding I was trying to relay was that in some of our work and in other people's work, people seem to mispredict the happiness of low income of low-income households, thinking that they're a lot less happier than they truly are, which I think is really nicely convergent with some of Robert's findings, which is that In places where people or places or in households where people might have very scarce financial resources, we might assume that's not great for happiness, that people are often doing better than others would predict. That was also the case of one of of the most exciting and rewarding projects I ever got to work on was traveling to Vanuatu to run a follow-up experiment looking at whether pro-social spending leads to happiness in small-scale traditional societies. And I made this exact same error where... You know, ignoring the pro-social spending question for just a minute, I was traveling to this to this small um, little rural place in the middle of Vanuatu. There was no running water, there was no electricity. Many folks never left their their village, nor would they. You know, and I thought, like, food is scarce, and and all these things. I thought maybe when people are going to be self-reporting their happiness, I'm, I'm curious to see where they're going to rate themselves on this scale. And in fact, it was some of the highest levels of happiness I'd ever seen in some of my own work. And you know, when I stopped to think about it, it became quite obvious. I mean, these people were living in small little villages with close family and friends. They were surrounded by the most gorgeous natural environment. Certainly they had stressors, do not get me wrong, but they were living such close and connected lives with other families and all these people they care about. They weren't worried about, in many ways, status and things that many of us get consumed and caught up with and you know, in retrospect, I was realizing that they have some of the highest levels on predictors of happiness that many of us overlook for ignorance chasing other things instead. So anyway, all that to say that I I think that work kind of nicely aligns with that of Robert B. Zadiner. That being said, so I think your original question was, (laughs) do the emotional rewards of generosity seem to be detectable in relatively rich and poor places or households and communities? And and the evidence we've collected to date suggests yes. In a 2013 paper, we ran a number of studies and analyzed some data. Long story short, what we found is in both relatively rich and relatively poor countries, so in places where GDP per capita was high versus where it was low. So, looking at in Canada, looking at in India, looking at in South Africa, even recruiting samples or or student populations where individuals have reported having trouble meeting their basic needs for their their families household over the past several months. Even in in some of these samples, we found that people were reporting higher levels on average spending money on others than on themselves. And so, I think people may give in very different ways and uh, in personally meaningful and representative ways. But I think this. The bottom line is that generosity, whatever form it might take, leads to these short-term emotional rewards relatively robustly in rich and enriching poor
1: contexts. So fascinating that we spend so much of our waking hours here in developed worlds trying to get more of this this money thing, which, of course, gives us comfort and makes life easier. But it's, the research is pretty clear that it's not what we make it out to be. Recently, we were we were in Mexico with our family and. I was chatting with the gentleman who was running the Airbnb mm-hmm. and he didn't own it. He was really good at uh, making sure everyone was comfortable. And we got to know him over the course of a few days. Super, super pleasant individual. He was just asking how our stay is going and we we're saying good. And I, we just started talking about Mexico and I just said, you guys live in a beautiful place. We like to be guests here. And he's just like, you know, I started to realize the more I've been doing Airbnb hosting, he just does it. Part time, but I, I realized that everyone's coming down here to have what I have, <laughs> and he's like, in the morning we do. They're they're building this big hotel. He's like, in the morning I build. We do. He's a construction worker with twelve of my close friends, and we talk and we build, and then I come and do this in the evening, and uh, I have what you have. one every or I have. He said something like. I get to look at this ocean every day and you come down here to do it. So he's like, life's good. I was like, yeah, it's so interesting that like <laughs> we want what they want. And often when, when tourists come in other countries, of course, life's easier. And I don't want to discredit that life is easier with money, but I just don't think it's as impactful as we really think it is. I think yeah. up
0: to a point, money buys a lot of security and comfort, mm-hmm. um, but beyond a certain point, like amassing more for the sake of amassing more, there, there's a lot more enjoyment that comes from using it to, to help others and, and spend one's time with the people you care about and do meaningful things than just having it sitting there.
1: And, and it comes with a place of uh, a lot of privilege to me be able to say, oh, it doesn't matter as much because I'm in a developed world. And right. But maybe that's the thing. We have a bathtub approach where once we get a certain amount of money, you just got to start spending it on others. <laughs> you know, the water will go over the bathtub, just like maybe our bank accounts have to be set to a certain limit.
0: When we published the first paper on this, my grandmother, who was really ill and she was an elementary school teacher, you know, academics was very far from her understanding of things she did. She didn't understand, you know, I remember her asking me like when our first paper was published, like, does that mean you get paid for this article? I was like, nope, we don't. We just, (laughs) you know, we put it out in the world. But she's, you know, she, she read the paper and she's like, I never wanted more in my life. My only um, reservation about not earning more was that I couldn't earn more to give it away, which was a really beautiful way of thinking things.
1: Wow. As someone who's really, really committed to research, can you just speak to the importance of looking at research, but also knowing that maybe not one research paper is the definition the way it is and the importance of, like we talked before we started recording, replication of research?
0: Yeah. So I think science offers amazing tools to try to understand the human mind, the human condition that take us, you know, anecdote and experience are really meaningful ways to learn about the world. But you know they're based on singular, often experiences and can't really capture the breadth of multiple iterations. Like so, you know things will happen more than once in life, and kind of stepping back and taking a data-driven scientific approach offers, I think, a really powerful way of understanding the world. And so, you know, all behind data and for policy, etc., and so and so on. That being said, I think it's important that people are critical processors of scientific research and not just taking anything that kind of comes in what appears to be a journal, a peer review journal is kind of the ultimate fact. I think science in and of itself is a constant process. It's an evolution. We hope to constantly move towards the truth. And that comes from multiple labs, multiple studies. No one study is ever perfect. Even those adopting the new best practices, you know, the humans are the ones running this enterprise. And so I think we need to be critical consumers of it. I think it's a really important way to learn about the world, but I also think kind of need to digest it with a grain of salt, realize how the conflicting studies might make sense together, realize that, you know, over time, science is going to course correct towards hopefully some some greater insight and truth. But no one study is going to be the ultimate end-all word on any particular topic.
1: Thank you. So my last question here is, let's imagine that you're uh, at end of life and you decide to write a letter to your kids' kids. It's about what you learned on having a happy, healthy relationship with money. What would be a theme to that letter?
0: I think I would tell my kids' kids that happiness is really other people and what you can do with them and for them. And so, you know, have enough money to not be stressed, but have you know, hopefully use your skills and and your abilities to do what you can to have money to help other people.
1: It seems like you're taking your grandma's legacy and implementing it now with your research.
0: Yeah, she was quite a woman.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your time and insights. I really appreciate your work and you taking this last hour to chat with us.
0: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you for tuning in this week to the Most Hated F Word podcast. If you've been enjoying these episodes, please head over to Apple podcast and leave a review. I'd greatly appreciate it and it does help get wonderful guests like Laura. And if you can send your favorite episode to a friend, family, colleague, whomever you think might enjoy these episodes, I would definitely appreciate you sending your favorite episode over to them. Until next week, have a great one. Thank you for tuning in this week to the Most hated F Word podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Laura as much as I did. She's doing such fascinating research. I highly recommend you check her out online. If you've been enjoying these episodes, please, can I ask you for a favor? Can you head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review? It really does help to get great guests like Laura. Until next week, have yourself a good one.